0: Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, a podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing the stories and the journeys from current top industry leaders there in the field today. My name is Felipe Flores and I am your host. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we'll be speaking with Kevin Harrison. Super interesting guy. He's from the US. Well, among his many accomplishments, he was the first ever chief data scientist in the state of Illinois crazy good. So he helped create the blueprint and execute on the first data strategy ever for the state. And now he is the chief data officer and deputy chief information officer for the city of Oakland in California. He has a wealth, wealth of experience. Uh, A lot of his background is in CRM, so customer relationship management, data integration, data quality, data warehousing, data architecture, et cetera. In speaking with him, you realize what a great leader he is and how he's able to collaborate really well within tough government organizations. And also thought, how cool is it that states and even cities now have chief data officers also something that's happening in australia so really really cool i hope you enjoyed the episode stick around till the end to hear from a couple of sponsors show them some love i hope that you are having a fantastic week and here is the episode with kevin harrison thanks a lot hi this is felipe flores and today i'm speaking with kevin harrison how are you doing I'm doing great. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm very, very excited to be speaking with you. Thank you very much for that. At the beginning, I would like to ask you if you can give us a bit about your background, your professional background. What's been your trajectory so far?
1: Yeah, so kind of can go through my resume a little bit. I took a few years off from school and went back to school, and this was a career change. I'd started out in the bicycle industry, went back to school, got my degree, and went to work for Hitachi America Limited as a uh, developer in their new college graduate program. From there, I moved to a consulting firm. It was a boutique, small consulting firm. I was employee number 15, and I stayed there 10 years. And when we left, we had over 100 employees. We had opened offices in Europe and in Brazil. What I actually did was they were uh, mainly on the old EDI translators and EDI SAP translators. That was their focus when I started with them. But based on uh, some tools I had used at Hitachi, my first client asked me to work with those tools for them on their uh, data warehousing initiative. I kind of went back to the company. Me with a proposal of the whole second line of business of data integration, data tools around data warehousing and ERP implementations, and built out that line of business for them. And working with one of the vendors was sent to Europe. For one of their clients as a third party consultant, went back to the, the small company and said, Hey guys, not only do I want to uh, build out a whole new line of business, but I see a need and I see resources. Let's write a business plan to open the European office. So we did that. I started that until another partner of that firm came over and took over our European office. So with that company, I was became their seventh partner. I was the one and only partner that was not a founding partner. So I'd earned my um, partnership through work and growth. When I left them, I worked for a few different uh, software vendors, Talon, Informatica, ETI, which are all you know, in the data integration, data management space, you know, that was also the time where data quality tools were no longer $250,000 entry point, but now we're at a point where a lot of our clients could afford to start cleaning their own data and bringing that in-house. So that's kind of how I grew into or learned about data quality from the beginning. So everything I've done, it feels like I've been there growing. So I have a very large historical perspective and I also worked for a uh, company in in San Francisco that was in the financial services industry. And then I made my way into the public sector. So, I mean, I know in prep we had talked about, well, talk about your industries. And I'll tell you from the consulting firm, I was with manufacturers. I was with Distributors, but also a lot in the uh, financial services vertical with uh, insurance companies and banks, and then of course, Steva, uh, which is a helps create payment engine for um, brokerage houses. What ended up happening was, and this is also true, is almost throughout my career, every job I've gotten has been because of someone I either worked with or for. Previously, And they've reached out to get me. So my old COO from ETI had told me about a job with the state of Illinois, and I applied. And so then I can add public sector to the list of verticals I've been in. So... My background is varied, and it's, you hate to say, a, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but I think the qualities that people like working with me and like being on teams with me apply across all verticals and all types of industries.
0: Exactly right. Your diverse background is extremely interesting. We will definitely dive into some of the lessons that you learned from all those different varied experiences. I think that is fantastic. But also the fact that people just want to keep working with you. That is great. Yeah, it really is. So before we dive into some of the stages in your career and talk about the specifics, before that, I'd like to ask you, what was it about data that grabbed you and pulled you in and interests you so much? And at what point did that happen for you?
1: Obviously that happened early on at Itachi. I had worked hard and earned the trust of my manager, and they were going through an SAP implementation and had, had purchased an ETL tool. And this was a key initiative of the company, and I'd been there less than a year, but long enough to have earned his respect. And he suggested that I be one of the first people trained in managing this tool, especially back then. But as always, when you're bringing in a tool to do what people want to do themselves and program themselves, there's a lot of resistance. And I was talking to the CIO, or I believe his title was director of MIS at the time. but Equivalent position came to me and said, Kevin, you have to realize in IT is it's not about programming. In the future... It's all going to be about the data and the people who learn the data are going to be the ones with the knowledge in the company. So there's really a forward, you talking about 95, 96, this was really a forward thinking person and I listened to him, made that my mantra for a while and it stayed well for me.
0: Definitely forward thinking and what fantastic advice to get early on in your career. That is great. So then you're cutting your teeth in doing data warehousing type work. How do you see the evolution of the data warehousing space throughout your career? What do you think about all the changes that have happened?
1: Well, I think what's happened is I'll say the data approach has matured. BI work, business intelligence work is understood, but as technologies come out, we widen what we can do with data. And now the BI has a very big need, especially as far as descriptive analytics, but it's no longer the end-all There's no enterprise data warehouse that's going to solve all your company's data problems. They're going to do a lot of work to help you understand what's going on in your company with descriptive analytics. But then as you've moved on and now you have data cleansing tools, now you have master data management, the next logical step is how do we do the prescriptive analytics? How do we categorize? How do we make decisions in advance And that's to me where data science comes to play. How do we model that? How do we learn new trends as they're happening? How do we see the new trends as they're happening rather than waiting until we get a snapshot and enough data to say this happened? And how do we make choices on the best decisions or the best path? You know, Whether you're a product company or whether you're dealing with human resources, what sort of courses might benefit this employee or this person if you're dealing with products? Where is the market going? What are our customers migrating to before we have to wait to see it
0: a year down the road? Ah, That's so interesting. I can completely relate because in in my case, I started my career on the data warehousing side as well. And at the very beginning, for years, I worked with small and medium businesses where I was building the database, building the reports and doing some analysis on top of that. But then when I started working with large corporations, it was all about data warehousing. And as you said, the descriptive analytics to show what's happened in the business. How many of these products did we sell? And all the traditionally seen as backward looking BI and reporting dashboards and visualizations but all about what's happened and i'm interested to get your views as you're saying that then it's moved into what a lot of people call the diagnostic analytics which is a bit more investigation to say why did this happen and then onto the predictive analytics in terms of what will happen and moving on to the prescriptive analytics of How can we make it happen into the the optimization and looking forward? Do you think that we're asking the right questions from our data? And as an industry, what are your views in terms of the maturity of organizations in their ability to make use of their data?
1: The maturity level is all throughout the curve. It depends on the industry and or the specific organization on where they're ready to mature to. I think I mentioned earlier, I don't think data warehousing or data marts are ever going to go away. They do provide a service and a need, especially when you're doing wanting to look historically at your data. But I think there's a desire by everyone to get a step ahead of the customer, if you will. That's a human customer, if your client is human or if you're trying to sell product. I think the desire is there. I think businesses are not ready for it. They want it. Some are ready. Some are making great use of it. But overall, I don't think businesses understand what this sort of change means to them. And I don't think that data officers need to do a better job of explaining the journey, if you will. Hey, this is going to change your culture in this way. We're doing a culture change. You need to support it. We need to sell it more than hammer it down people's throats. And we need to work to mature the world workforce to be ready. I think everything around this part in data is a culture change. So having more forward thinking senior management is extremely
0: helpful. And in your case, you have so much experience since your consulting days onwards in in helping organizations mature their data capabilities. What are some of the ways have worked really well for you to help companies advance their data maturity levels and data capabilities? So I think you find
1: senior managers who can envision the future state and are willing to work with you on smaller projects to advance it incrementally. As the data practice, if you will, begins to gain successes, then we can get larger projects. But I think initially you need to find the willing senior executive and then look at their wish list, projects that are small enough to make an impact and that impact has to be measurable. That may not be millions of dollars, but if we can say we cut a process down by 50%, even though it's a small process, then you can show the benefits and start getting some wins because that will build your credibility with throughout the organization. That also helps you in everything you do. You should be starting small because it helps you learn that organization better, too, and your team learn the organization so that you can work. You don't make mistakes on big projects that you might make on little ones. No one will notice the mistakes on the little projects.
0: It's true. And I love that that you said that the start small, prove the value. That is such a great approach. How do you pick the problems to tackle and prioritize projects? How do you do that?
1: So I do a couple of things. I'm going to be working with different senior leaders, and I find the ones that want to make a difference, want to make a change. They have a vision of what the outcome to be. And uh, I work with them on what their projects are to help find one that's achievable in a short amount of time. So it's it's kind of a negotiation, but you go find a friend, and then you negotiate with the friend to something that you know you can succeed on.
0: Uh, Yes, that makes total sense, because then you're building and developing a relationship of trust both ways, where you'll be guiding them on the data side, and they'll be guiding you on the business side in terms of their, their needs and their requirements. And how does that relationship evolve over time from the small projects at the beginning? And what does it look like later on?
1: Well, I think that is, a, I think the growth with say that one senior leader is just natural. It's like, okay, now we've proven something. You've worked with us. Hopefully, it's been a, a good relationship. So let's tackle the next problem. But more importantly, what I'm doing is showing success to that person's peers. So that allows me to go back. There are sometimes you get a manager and says, yeah, this is what I want. You don't understand the process and you don't understand the commitment I'm asking from you. And you're really telling me the end state, but I need your support. Throughout all the phases. And so then you can go back and say, okay, now you see how we did it here. This is what I need from you. You can't be skipping these steps. We have to do a kickoff. We have to talk about what the end state is. We have to have change management. We have to tell people what their jobs might look like in the future. And no, we aren't taking your job away. We're just modifying how you do it from day to day. We're saving you time here so you can spend more time there.
0: That sort of discussions. And to what degree do you think the a chief data officer should get involved in the change management discussion and those types of discussions in terms of dealing with the overall organization and the staff that's going through the changes?
1: On the initial projects, quite a bit because we're proving ourselves out. So our team is small as it is, and that's going to be our most important project. So I, th- I think initially we need to make sure that my team and the business unit are working hand in hand and that we are watching and working together. Am I creating the definition of the change or the job today versus tomorrow? No, but am I making, working with the business owner and make sure that's being communicated so that my team can work freely and comfortably? And honestly, yeah, quite a bit. I think as the team gets bigger, then you pull back and you have more. Or define change management role within the team and better understanding within the organization of what the customers need to come to the table with up front. Yes,
0: that makes so much sense. And how did your time when you were consulting and essentially becoming a partner at the company, I'm thinking of Legendary Systems, when you were spending your time there, what were some of the themes that you saw in working with clients? What were some of the common challenges and pitfalls that you saw during that time?
1: So I guess, especially back then, it was the resistance. To change those were the biggest yes the lessons learned was how to promote change and change an approach and deal with the culture change because you're going into an IT organization that's filled with developers who want to hand code everything, who believe that their code is far superior than a tool set. And you're trying to bring in a tool to do what people believe no tool could do their job. So that, of course, is a a humongous culture change. And I think that is where I really learned how to approach people that, yes, there's a change coming and yes, it's going to directly affect you because your manager said so isn't going to get the change made. How to work with people and, and convince them that it's not a bad thing. We aren't putting you out of a job. We're going to train you on the tool. How do you work with the tool and what are the benefits to you and your career in using the tool versus doing it the old way?
0: Interesting. And how do you go about doing that? Do you start with one-on-ones with some of the senior people or do you go broad base early on? What is your process to communicate the changes coming and get people involved?
1: I think it's early on is to try and lay out a vision and then try and boil that down to an individual and allow one-on-one with the people that you are working with to talk it out and understand what that means. I think the biggest thing here is be honest. Don't try and hem and haw or sugarcoat, or just be honest. This is what's going to happen, but you don't have to put it in a negative way or this way or else type way. So to give you an example, one of the software companies I was working with and, and we were going through a sales cycle and we had a proof of concept and um, I was working with this uh, older gentleman, younger then than I am now, but at the time he was significantly uh, I had more years on the job than I did. It was time out tools. This is stupid. We should just do it ourselves. We just had this honest conversation about, well, you can look at the tools from five years ago to the tools today, and they're getting better. And at some point, tools are going to be doing the data integration work and the ETL work. And at some point, you're going to have to learn to use one. And and so we had that conversation. At the end of the day, at the end of the proof of concept, we're trying to close the deal. And this guy had been, I'll say, relatively negative about everything, kind of a negative personality. But he was also a very trusted source to the senior manager who was running the procurement. And he looked at this gentleman and said, what do you think? And his response was, I don't know. And it wasn't, I don't know, like negative, bad thing. It was, he truly didn't know. And we closed the deal and the senior manager came to me and he said, you know what closed the deal? He took this guy from a no to an I don't know. You didn't have to sell him. You just had to make him not a no. (laughs) No.
0: That is so unexpected because generally in those situations when you get an I don't know as on the recipient of that I don't know, you think the worst, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. But his manager knew him well enough to know that moving him that far in that amount of time was really more than he expected.
0: That is incredible. And did those lessons prepare you to be a chief data officer? And if so, in what way?
1: Well, I think yes, in a lot of ways. So again, we started with we're taking someone's job that they've done for 20 years and having to change it and to change their belief in themselves that this is the only way to do something. When we're coming in now as a chief data officer, there's usually a a belief that there's value in the data and we need help in unlocking it. It is not that we're changing someone's existence in pride in their work, that's what I'm looking for. We aren't taking, you know, this is why I get pride and I do this day in, day out. No, you still get pride in what you're doing. You're still doing similar things. We're just changing how you approach it. So in some ways, it's almost easy. You're dealing with a higher level, more type A personality in the senior leaders at times, but you aren't telling them to give up their pride in their daily work. You're just saying, we're, we're changing how we do it, and you still get to do the same work.
0: Very interesting. And I'm sure it's still challenging to create those changes in the organization, but that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's definitely, obviously, as, as I mentioned, that's something you're quite experienced in. And tell me, when you go into the organizations, how do you develop the data strategy for them? What is your process?
1: Well, I think to some degree, you have to figure out where that organization is on the maturity curve and also understand their leadership, where they want to be, where their knowledge level is, and what sort of education you have to do. Those are really the starting points. I think everything in data is around the maturity curve of how the company is organized around data, how they use data, what are their processes or data governance. Those are all at different levels on maturity curves. Figure out where they are. Understand what is their burning need or desire. Where do you have to get to to achieve that? Some people just get wowed by having dashboards because they're IT department could never do it before. Or self-service dashboards where the business owner could play with their own data in semi-real time versus having to put a request for a report into IT and wait three hours or three days. Sometimes just getting them dashboards is the big win and they aren't can't even think past that. Once you see that, then you can mature management to think to the next step. Now that you've seen this, let me tell you what we can do to build on that. It's all a starting point in maturity curve. How do we take you from where you are to where you want to be. That makes
0: a lot of sense. And it's a big challenge when you have all these different areas at different stages of maturity, and then we'll have a vision of where you want to get them to. How do you prioritize what to start doing now and what to do later?
1: Again, it's find a friend, an executive who has the budget and the need and the ability to work with you and support you. That's the one you start with. And then as you build out, your team can also grow because you're showing results. You're showing an ROI. So then you can get more money to build the team out to do more. When you're selling software, it's where's the executive support? And really, that's where you have to go, the executive support with money, who has an understanding of working together as a team. Those are the things. And sometimes you have people who think they're ready, who have money, who want something. You have to make sure that they're ready to invest more than just the finances, but the support. And if they aren't, then you wait till you get more and more successes so that you can put greater demand on them.
0: That's great. What I really like about your answer is the fact that you're starting with people that want results, that want action, they want to move, and you're immediately addressing pressing needs. I think it's a really great approach. And in contrast to some other approaches that I've seen where people take a stance of build it and they will come, they do a lot of work just on what they think that could be good for an organization. But in your case, you focus on that need yeah, and, and, I think,
1: and stuff. I think you bring up a great point. How many data warehouses failed because of that build it and they will come? Um, attitude. If nothing else, uh, I say data warehousing or data BI is all still needed. But there is a lesson from those years in the late 90s and early
0: 2000s of you can't force it down people's throat. So true. And also, if you're not close to the business and their needs, I think that it's almost inevitable to be that you will end up building things with a lot of fat. Essentially, like there will be a lot of wasted effort if people are hypothesizing about what the business might need while being far away from them. That's something that you avoid definitely with your approach. And was that a conscious decision in your part? How did you come to develop this approach of being very close to the business?
1: Probably through lots of mistakes of not being close enough. A lot of it stemmed from I've done a lot of what I've been doing has been with very small teams and where we couldn't address everyone's needs at once. So we had to prioritize where we were also trying to prove ourselves from the start. So we most of my teams have had a startup mentality. If you said these seven roles are needed, but we only had three people. So we had to double up on the things we did. And that helps you want to do something quick and fast. To start making an impression, to start helping fill in the team, to start and to do things that you're capable of doing. I mean, no one wants a three-person team working for three years in the back room without anything coming out to show. So I think that's really. I've watched too many waterfall big bang projects fail at the end, and I've always adopted the theory that if we fail, we big bangs make too much noise when they fail.
0: We want something nice and quiet if it fails. That is great. So concise in terms of the and, and capturing the right thinking. That was fantastic. Definitely. It's about, yeah, the small projects deliver value, small increments. And as you say, if it fails, no problems, low stakes. And in the conversation before, you mentioned that data governance was a, an important part of a good strategy. What are your views on data governance and how do you approach it?
1: My approach is much the way I do building a team or anything. We start with generally there's none or very little, and so you build just enough for the project you're working. But you try to put it together so that it's managed not just by your team. It has to include the business, but by a small flexible teams so that it can change and grow, and we can add. To the governance when we get a second project. without You don't want data governance by project. You need enterprise data governance. So let's build the data governance that we need for the simple project. Let's leave it open and let's have a process or a team in place that includes the business so that on the second project, maybe your first project's for HR and you need governance around how you deal with employee and the second project might be around sales to customers, so you then need to add something about products, and you may have a, you still can reuse a lot of what you've done on governance and defining a person, but that person is going to look a little different if they're a customer versus an employee. So how do we mold those two together? And then we can start adding more and more on each project. One of the biggest problems. I see in data governance is, again, this is educating the customer or the enterprise in that businesses have heard the term. They understand that data governance may or may not affect security. I mean, it really should be. Security is a big reason, security and privacy for doing data governance. But they believe, uh, the senior, a lot of businesses believe data governance is a project. So here, data officer, here's some money for the project. Now go in the back room and give us a white paper on data governance. That to me is not data governance. The business has to be the same people you're working with on these projects have to agree on what elements mean, how they can be shared or not shared, what defines a person or a product, all those sorts of things. It is not a project. It is an ongoing process.
0: And I think that's where a lot of companies might lose their way that they approach it as a once-off exercise when it's actually, as you said, a process that is an ongoing concern that needs to be kept alive. Otherwise, when you need to access data, you might be looking for the data owners and you realize that they've all moved roles or moved on from the company and that it just hasn't been looked at. The data governance size hasn't been updated or looked at since the project was first done.
1: Right. Or it's stale or a million. You don't even know who is the true source of record for a given piece of data.
0: You you have
1: duplicated systems who's sharing it with who, but who has the true source of record?
0: Correct. Have you had cases where you found organizations in that state where the data governance has been not kept up to date and, and maybe ignored a little bit for some time? And then you came in to help them with that?
1: What I find in those cases generally
0: was that data governance was done with respect
1: to a specific project. When the project went live and into maintenance or got canceled or however, it morphed out of the development phase because then data governance was just dropped. And no one paid attention. And it was always done at a project level. And so that's one thing, you know, I say I want to build project by project project just enough that's needed, but I want to do it on an enterprise scale.
0: That is very interesting. So what type of overheads does that approach put on the project teams?
1: not too much initially. I think the biggest thing is to get buy-in. Who are the decision makers? So the project team from the technical side is really just capturing and making suggestions on the governance. But we try to push that back to the customer who is the uh, owner of the data or the custodian of the data. They might have a little bit, but it's ongoing. So it's not... I'm trying to say it's a, it's a little bit of the tax, but it's not long term that makes yes. sense?
0: Yeah, it definitely does because you are looking for that incremental need, the requirement of each project. And then how do you string together the increases in data governance from project to project? Do you have the same people well, working on it or people similar people reviewing it? What's your approach?
1: So generally, we start adding teams. So if you look at, at it overall, we'd have a, a more mature data governance model. Overall, at a high level, we'd have a steering committee, and we'd be uh, utilizing senior leaders from each division within the uh, company. And then a second level, we'd have managers authorizing within each group, These data elements do mean this is how we use these data elements. Here's the standard going forward for how we capture that sort of data element. And with that, as you start getting into more and more data, you aren't going back to the same group because usually by that point, we're expanding our projects beyond one group to another group. So now we're starting to add data elements from a second business unit. And so ongoing steering committee has a little bit of work that never goes away, but that mid level comes and goes as we deal with different projects. And once that is defined, it's really just a maintenance mode. Now, there is a lower level with data stewards where the work stays around for longer periods of time, but those are also the technicians. Quite often, they see the benefit of maintaining not only the data governance, but the data quality and it's
0: saving them time overall. That's very interesting. And could you describe the role of the data steward in that situation?
1: The data steward to me is, is going to be tied usually to a system. And it could be a many to many relationship, depending on the organization. But this is, I like to think of it as a person within the business who knows how that data is used by the business, how that data is trusted within the business, and what the business has 10 different addresses. What does each one mean? What does your group care about? Someone from finance? My ongoing example is if you're a distributor and you have two systems, right? An inventory system, which has a ship to address and a bill to address. Well, they only care about the ship to address. I and mean, that's what their group uses. And you probably have a different accounting system, accounts receivable system. And finance might still have a ship to and a bill to, but they never ship anything. And it may not be so true today where everything's all the invoices are submitted electronically, but historically, their bill-to-address made sure that that invoice hit the desk of the person that's going to enter it in, and that was perfect. So understanding not just some of that is understanding the best system of record for those two different addresses, but understanding how your group uses
0: that data, too, or doesn't and who trusts it. Yes, and then they become almost like a guide in the world of data to take people where they need to go and what to focus on. That's really good. I wanted to ask you what are your views on data monetization? Obviously, there's a lot of one of the big trends at the moment is is around getting other types of value from data, being able to sell the data or productize it in some way. What do you think about that side?
1: As far as productionalizing your data for resale to data aggregators. I'll be quite honest. I haven't had much experience with that. We've looked at that on the public sector side, but where I was are a variety of reasons that was not achievable because this was really the data that could be shared was really the citizens' data anyway. So you couldn't really turn that into a, a profit mode. A lot of the other companies I've worked with, the data is very sensitive, especially when you're dealing with banks. They aren't going to want to sell a whole lot of your data. I know they do sell data to 3rd parties or contact this person about insurance type. But I haven't really been involved in that. I've been involved in the other side of I need more data that I don't have. So let me go find someone who's already aggregated it for
0: me. And how has that been? Have you found it a easy, difficult process? And what's been your experience so far?
1: I think dealing with uh, the word I'm trying to use, reputable data aggregators where you can trust the data. A lot of times I've used that with sales organizations to help target the leads and where do they really focus their marketing. And in those cases, that's been very successful. If you know what your average client looks like in your market space, then you come back from a trade show with 200 leads, you can probably filter to the 20 best chances for you very quickly.
0: And tell me, what were some of the challenges that you found when moving from industry to industry or sector to sector, either as a consultant or a technology vendor, and then obviously moving into public office? What were the challenges that you find moving between sectors and how did you tackle them?
1: I think the biggest one is you don't know our data. Data is data. I'm not saying you don't have to learn an ERD or the data dictionary. You don't have to learn how the data is used. You do. But no one's data is is that different. But I always look at that as a pride in in their company. Their office has special data. And so you can't really just come out and say data is data, but you can um, start working with it and start showing people that you do know how to manipulate the data fairly quickly, you can find things in the data to ask them about. So you never challenge our team is different or our data is different. You just have to be confident in your ability to deal with data and then approach it much softer to come ask questions and show things that you found in the data.
0: Right. That's really good, actually. And Was there any differences in how you structure your team or organize your team between working in consulting in technology vendors and in public office?
1: Not so much. And most of these are projects. We're going to have, uh, you know, again, everything starts off from the startup mentality. We all do wear five hats and then four and three and two. But even so, you have different roles that are needed in at different points, right? So when you're doing a data warehouse, the first thing you need to do is do some analysis and you need to come up with a logical data model, physical data model, ETL, QA, the front end piece. And at different phases. You needed one ETL person kind of architect a generic standard data flow. But as you got to, hey, here's the first draft at the physical model, we might need ten ETL people. And then as you're going through QA, you might need two or three. So there's a lot of understanding people's roles and matrixing the role Across the different projects. And that's true whether you're in consulting, moving them from account to account, or whether you're working in an enterprise with one team of employees, you're really doing the same thing. You're doing a matrix approach and understanding the role of the different resources. And sometimes it's the same
0: resource, but he took off his ETL hat and put on his front end developer hat. And do you find that people were easy or were able to adapt to that easily? Or did you have to guide them through it?
1: I'm gonna say a little of both. So when they came onto my team, we were always that way and that people kind of adapted because that was our culture. Other times, other places, that I've been where I'm, I'm working with employees, either as I'm a consultant or I'm working with in-house people who've been there longer, might be a little bit
0: more rigid because I haven't really dealt with that ongoing culture. That's very interesting. And how did you get them to accept or buy into the culture for the people that were more rigid or more resistant to it?
1: I think, again, it's having the they may be hard conversations to have the honest conversation without being confrontational and without trying to say, you will do this or you have to do this, but just having the, this is what is needed for us to be successful. And this is, we need you to
0: help us type approach. That's very great. So now I'd like to take a step back and ask you, I guess, some more high-level questions around your views and advice for the listeners. The first one is, what do you see or what do you think makes a great data scientist?
1: Someone who is not overconfident in their work someone who's really willing to circle back, either because an accept that an original assumption was wrong, someone to really look at the work, someone to say, does this make sense? So in data science, a big iterative loop, sometimes your assumptions are wrong, sometimes your implementation is wrong, but you need someone who is
0: so confident in their abilities that they don't take a hard look at the outcomes. That is so true. And what do you think makes a great data science leader?
1: The ability to mentor others. So how do we bring up other data scientists? How do we bring the business along? And a lot of that is teaching, but I don't want professor because you're dealing with professionals and they already know their job and are probably quite good at it. So I don't want a teacher, but I do want a mentor. So you get that distinguish that you know I'm trying to say you get the difference
0: between the two. Yes. So you see a mentor, somebody, or do you see a mentor, somebody who is more guiding people through the journey as opposed to a professor who is more, I guess, broadcasting and lecturing? Yeah,
1: the lecturing, the broadcasting. But the mentor is maybe sits one day one-on-one and then slowly works their way out away from that person as the person gets better to the point where the person who's been mentored knows how to call the mentor when they have a question or need advice and they feel comfortable doing so versus the assignment from the textbook and the lecture on the chalkboard and the, this is how it has to happen.
0: That's really good and important for leaders. Completely agree.
1: Oh, I'd probably just add on to most of these people have graduated from universities and they're professionals, so they don't
0: need to be treated like children anymore. They don't appreciate it if they are. Very true. Very important to keep in mind. And what do you see as the current challenges in the industry?
1: I'm not sure if I want to say they're challenges. What's happening right now, as has happened throughout data, right, is we we get something, we get a new approach. It's all custom. It's all hand-built. And then people build products to do that. And I think with some of these clustering algorithms are now, you don't need a data scientist for if you can use a variety of data management tools that will implement those algorithms for you. So I think where we're going right now is there's still a shortage of data scientists, but their roles are going to get pushed as uh, products hit the market more and more to do some of the work they've been doing. I think that's going to force them to be less technical and more business. Going back to how I started my career
0: as an ETL person. That's right. That's so interesting. It is going to come circle. That is so true. And looking into the future, what do you see as some of those future challenges coming up?
1: This is why I listen to the wise. I've had two people who could really be visionaries that I've worked for. I may not be the best at being a visionary. I look at what the market's doing and where the market leaders are taking us, and then I apply it to my situation better than I say, gee whiz, this big data and NoSQL databases or R and Python are the future. I would have never guessed those things. I picked on them pretty early when they came out, but I'm not sure what's next.
0: Yeah, there is so much happening and it's so quickly. It's definitely, definitely a tough one. Completely agree. And this has been so great. It's so interesting, valuable. I only have one last question for you. And that is, I would like to ask you for a takeaway or a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with. What what would that be? So I think the biggest
1: thing I've learned is to really work hard. That is something that's helped me even when I've been struggling, even as a consultant struggling on accounts, people see me working hard and be willing to help me because I wasn't trying to put my work on others. And I think in everything, if you're working hard, people are much more willing to help you. The second thing is let people help you. And the third and most important thing is I've had two bosses tell me this. And again, all my career, I get rehired by the same group. Two bosses said the thing that they made them trust me the most was whenever I made a mistake, I admitted it and then worked hard to fix it right away. Never said not me, never said him, never said this or that. Oops, and I'm on it. People don't try to screw up. They don't try to sabotage the project. People make mistakes. So get past the political and the finger pointing just say, oops, and fix it. And everyone will respect that.
0: Excellent advice. And what a fantastic note to end on. Kevin, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your learnings, your journey, your wisdom. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thanks again. Thank you, Philippe. I look forward to talking to you later. Same here. Thank you so much. Take care. And we'll be in touch soon. Thank you very much. Bye. (laughs) Data Source Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Data Source is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top-performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs, and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest caliber of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news listeners, University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au that brings this episode to conclusion thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on facebook twitter linkedin or instagram as datafuturology also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.